Inside Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Millennium Health. I visited this specialty laboratory to learn about their efforts to combat our nation's drug overdose crisis. By using urine drug test results to monitor the shifting landscape of drug use, the lab creates real-time trend reports that identify emerging drug threats. This allows clinicians, first responders, and those responsible for public health to be quickly informed about these changes to help reduce overdose deaths. Visit www.millenniumhealth.com for more information. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a preventative discussion of High Truths. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That famous expression is credited to Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers of the United States, as well as a scientist, inventor, printer, politician, and diplomat. In 1733, Franklin visited Boston and was very impressed with the city's fire prevention methods. Spending small amount of time and effort early was considered a good investment and can save you a lot more trouble in the end. Franklin published a letter in his own newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette, about protection of towns from fire, and his article began with the words, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Franklin's famous saying was originally applied to fire protection. Preventing a fire can save much money and resources rather than fighting a fire. And that's true for any adverse event. Preventing that event is much better than trying to fix the damage after it already happened. The principle applies to addiction as well. Preventing addiction is much better than trying to fix the damage after it already happened. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, Dr. Love. My name is Michelle Leopold. We have worked together on warning labels for marijuana products and decreasing deaths from opioids. I do this work in memory of my forever 18-year-old son, Trevor. My question to you is, what is the best approach in reaching kids who are not using drugs and to prevent them from using? I hear from past sessions on here that there is some scientific approach. Uh, I understand they say don't use scare tactics, but fentanyl is deadly and scary. Thank you, Dr. Lev, for your work and your wonderful podcast. Great question, Michelle, and thank you for that and for your energy and persistence in an important cause. I'm so grateful to you and your work. Let's get an answer from a man who talks to kids for a living. 
in the very mission of preventing drug use. Rockwell Heron. Rocky developed I Choose My Future, a drug prevention presentation for kids. He delivered over 820 presentations in 15 countries to 150,000 kids ages 12 to 22. He is the alcohol and other drug ambassador for the San Diego County Office of Education since 2021. You can find Rockwell Heron's bio on the High Truth show notes. Rocky Heron, welcome to High Truths. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So, Rocky, I met you as a DA agent who walked into the Medical Society building with a bunch of doctors with a gun on your hip, and we were like, oh, my God, <laughs> there's a law enforcement officer here. Um, and as we were not used to dealing with law enforcement, and you were at the very, very beginning, way before anyone really in the country got into the issue of overprescribing, and you saw that. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about those days? Absolutely. I started in DEA as a special agent back in 1990 uh, here in San Diego. And in 1998, I went to Bolivia for six years for DEA. And then in 2004, I came back and I was completely unaware of the prescription drug problem. I mean, I'd read headlines about Oxycontin abuse back on the East Coast, but I and my coworkers, we didn't think it was a big problem here in San Diego. And then about 2007, we discovered it actually was a really serious problem here in San Diego. And we and DEA began to pay attention to it. And DEA San Diego assigned me as the first agent in a unit dedicated to investigating prescription drug abuse. And very quickly, uh, you know, upon analyzing that problem, I realized that we needed to engage with the medical community. So that's uh, that's how you met me. So I was going out to emergency departments across the county and, and giving training sessions to doctors on prescription fraud and the techniques that people were using to cheat them. And and uh, I appreciated you for being very willing and, and open to to working with law enforcement to find a way that we could collaboratively uh, you know, make the world a better place for both doctors and patients. And I, and I think you you and I helped accomplish that. Yeah, very much so. And when you met that, and there was a lot of blame in those days. This is like 20, right? 11, 2012. Wow, 2008, 2009. Right, really, really early. I mean, if we think about it, the CDC guidelines only came out in 2016. So we've been working on this years before there was a, a national outcry. And what was your re reaction of, of meeting doctors who were over-prescribing? Well, I, my dad was a doctor here in San Diego. So, you know, I was very respectful uh, of the medical profession when I went into the work uh, investigating and, and, and regulating the medical profession. Um, but very quickly, I discovered that there were doctors who were trying to be ethical and trying to work, you know, in the best interest of the patients. And other many doctors, unfortunately, were just trying to make money and get along. And so that became an interesting aspect of my work. You know, I'd meet a physician and I would talk with them. And very quickly, I developed a sense for if they were really trying to do the right thing by the patient or, or unfortunately, many were just trying to, to you know, not create problems and, and to keep their businesses going. So uh, and there was generally a rejection of me. Um, there was sort of a resentment in the medical profession that the DEA was, you know, sticking sticking its nose into the prescribing of controlled substances. But unfortunately, that's the way the law is set up. You know, every doctor possesses a DEA registration, um, and 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 the DEA has a responsibility to make sure that the doctors are prescribing in accordance with that registration. So part of my work was building relationship with the medical community in San Diego and informing them and convincing them that we weren't the enemy. That you know we weren't simply looking to punish all and every doctor. And in fact, I accomplished that. I heard at one point that my business card was taped up in every emergency department in the county. And in fact, I was frequently getting calls from doctors yeah. uh, giving me information about patients or or even other doctors or uh, suspicious pharmacies. So it, we really developed a very 
unique working environment in San Diego that I don't know that was replicated anywhere else in the country where law enforcement and the medical community were working together to, to try and eradicate prescription drug abuse. Um, and I, I really thank you for that. I saw you as a, a partner in, in saving lives and doing things that I can't do. If I saw patients who are doctor shopping and I knew that they were, they could die, how am I going to stop that? Um, and uh, I, I think that you're accredited for saving lives by, by doing that. And um, there were very few quack doctors. I, mean, I think you saw them, <laughs> um, but that was a very small percentage of doctors who were using opioids just to make a buck. Most of us were really by law um, pushed into over-prescribing. No, absolutely. The, the, the culture and, and the nature of the insurance business and the, you know, the influence the pharmaceutical industry placed on, on the medical associations pressured doctors into, you know, pushing these meds. But you're quite correct. I mean, in the 10 years that I did that specialized work against prescription drug abuse, I arrested a total of six doctors. Uh, I'm proud of that. Um, they all deserved it. And I used to, when I would lecture doctors, I said, look, you have to earn, you have to earn your way onto my radar. You know, we, we actually are sophisticated. We can look at what a doctor is prescribing and determine if, you know, if that's reasonable or if it's obviously unreasonable. And uh, but there were, unfortunately, those very bad doctors. But the problem, of course, is that the drug abusing population talks to each other. So one of the things that we would discover that when we, we someone would give us a tip that maybe a doctor was over prescribing or was selling prescriptions, we would take a look at the patients. Uh, and if you, if we discovered a large number of patients with criminal histories for prescription drug abuse or, or drug sales and things like that, that was an indicator that those patients had spoken to each other and, and were, were preferring to use those certain physicians. But no, I, I, I think we convinced the medical profession that we weren't the enemy. Um, and that, you know, that to do, it's like you just said, I mean, to, to really to solve this problem in the best interest of the patients, we have to be working together. And, uh, you know, hopefully that I'm out of DEA now, I retired last year after 31 years, but hopefully that relationship continues. It does. I think we do have a wonderful relationship and bridging the gaps between, you know, public health and public safety. I think by working with you and you're like the first one that I ever work with, you've made me a better doctor. My interactions with law enforcement makes me a better doctor because I, I kind of know what's out there, know what to look for. Um, so I really uh, appreciate that. And, and I think we were able to calm um, the medical community was like, wait, was this guy with a gun coming and talking to us? Are you, am I under investigation? And there, there are few dirty doctors, like in any profession, and they should go to jail and throw away the key because they give a bad name to the rest of us who've, you know, dedicated our heart and souls to, to health care. Um, so uh, I really appreciate that. So thank you. Thank you. I thank you back because I think you, you, Standing up with me to, in publicly, uh, you know, was helpful as well. And other doctors respect you, and they saw if you were willing to work with with me and us, that 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 helped open doors. But uh, interestingly, when I started doing my outreach to the medical community, I got resistance from DEA and from DEA headquarters. And there was a notion that that we shouldn't be engaging with the prescribing population because we have to regulate them. And my argument was, well, how in the hell can I regulate, you know, this prescribing population if I'm not engaging with them? Uh, so it was it was really the success of my outreach and engagement with doctors like you that that kind of carried the argument and and DEA finally realized that you know that we were onto something with coming and closer to the medical community rather than than staying very separate from them. Yeah, you taught us how we are victims, 
right? You taught us the tricks that are being used with our DA numbers and, and different ways that we never heard of. We're not used to that. We're, you know, we want to believe patients and um, do what's right. Um, and uh, you were able to bring some light on that too. Ultimately, both our goals to save save people's lives. So that was great. Uh, well, one, of the, well, one, more, one more aspect of that, you know, yeah. when I, the very first prescription abuse uh, doctor shopper that I arrested, I, I did the traditional DEA arrest. Uh, we, we took a team of agents out and this guy worked at the DMV uh, office in El Cajon. And, you know, I went in and arrested him and put him in handcuffs in the back of my car. And this poor guy was sobbing. And I realized, but well, this is not your typical drug trafficker, right? And I realized we didn't have to treat them. You know, the, the people living in, in prescription drug addiction, we didn't have to treat them like, like, you know, a traditional drug crime criminal. And I ended up changing my my method of operation, and I would get the phone number for the people that I was investigating. And when I was ready, I'd call them, and I'd introduce myself over the phone and say, "Hey, you need to come turn yourself in." Uh, and they would show up at the DEA office, and and I would I would do this and say, "Okay, now you're under arrest. No handcuffs, no violence." And I was I'd read them the Miranda rights, and I would explain my investigation. And uh, once in a while, I would get a patient who would you know object and say, "Well, I've got a legitimate medical condition." And, and they felt that's why they were justified in going to six or eight or 10 different doctors. And I, I, I told them, look, you know, you don't understand what you're doing here. First of all, you started out with 10 Vicodin a day, and now you're taking 30. Um, and if we don't stop this, eventually you're going to be taking 40 or more. And because you're defrauding your physicians, you're lying to each doctor claiming that you're their only patient or you're the only doctor and these doctors are investing in you. And when they discover that you've been lying and cheating them, the next time someone with legitimate pain comes into that medical practice, that doctor may be less likely to prescribe to them. So however justified you feel in committing crimes to get your opioids, what you're doing is actually hurting other people with legitimate injuries. And, uh, you know, I, I think we did change the community in San Diego a little bit. Yeah, a lot of it, a lot of it. We don't have that problem anymore. Um, we, we, one of the projects that we did is send letters to doctors from the medical uh, examiner's office, letting them know that their patient died, 800 letters. Um, uh, in a in you know a few months period, that's a lot of people who died and physicians who had no idea that their patients died, and now the medical examiner is looking to duplicate that project. And this there isn't there isn't you know they, I think he found like maybe five like there there isn't that volume. We fixed it. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. we think we fixed it, and then the drug situation changed on us, right? Yeah, so that's right. There's a we couple things like, happening. That's right. Whack-a-mole. We fixed one problem and the next one is even worse. Um, and so you moved from working in DA, working with doctors to working with kids. What's with that? How, that's a pretty big thing. Yeah, that surprises a lot of people. Well, in, I, I start, like I said, I started in 1990. Uh, I lived in Bolivia with my three little girls. And when we all came home in 2004, they were nine, seven, and five. And there's a true story I share um, you know, we hadn't been exposed to much U.S. television when we were living in Bolivia. You know, we come home for short visits and things. But when we moved back, my kids started watching TV like everybody else's kids do. And uh, shortly after we were home, my little girls came up to me and said, Daddy, what's erectile dysfunction? Okay. And I was kind of shocked by the question. And I, I tried to answer it, you know, in, a, in an honest way. And then I said, why are you asking me this? And my daughters explained, well, I don't know. We see all these ads on TV. We don't know what it is. And I started watching some of the TV and I was shocked because the, the, the advertising laws changed. In the late 90s, early 2000s, the pharmaceutical industry lobbied the FCC and the FDA. And we used to have those old pharmaceutical ads with that Star Wars text at the bottom. And they were very visually unattractive. Well, that was all changed. And that in the late 90s is when we began to see these very beautiful, visually beautiful and musically beautiful ads for, for, for all these medicines. 
And uh, I, I realized that there's times in the day where every single commercial on TV is is for a over-the-counter or a prescription drug. And, uh, you know, that that really that really impacted me. And uh, and then and a couple of years later, when my oldest girl was in fifth grade, uh, I went in to give a little conversation about my job. And I was the, you know, super dad that day. I went in with a bulletproof shield and my badge and the kids love me. But I, at the end of my presentation about my job, I said, hey, does anybody have questions about drugs? And a little 11-year-old's said, yeah, what's heroin and what's methamphetamine? And my heart sank because oh, I didn't want my, my daughter and her classmates asking me at 11 about meth and heroin. And I went to the school and I said, well, what are you doing to educate the kids? And, and they said nothing. Um, Dare was you know pushed out of the schools 10 or 15 years ago, and, and it wasn't replaced by anything. Well, actually, more than 20 years ago, Dare was, you know, the push against Dare started. So I developed my own little program to give to my daughter's fifth grade class about what I thought that I would want her as a dad and an agent, what would I want her to know? And then by word of mouth, I got more invitations and more invitations. And by the end of my DEA career, um, half of my time was being spent um, teaching in schools. So I decided to retire and really dedicate myself to that. And the County Office of Education here in San Diego offered me a position last year as the alcohol and other drug ambassador. And it's an awesome job. It's outward facing. And I spend all my time getting into schools and, and, and churches and community groups to educate on this. That's great. What a great dad and what a great retirement plan, too. Um, so Michelle Leopold has a question to High Truth so that I think is perfect for you. Um, she says, what is the best approach in reaching kids who are not using drugs and prevent them from using? Well, that's what I do. Uh, I show up in the schools and I explain who I am and I say, look, you know, it's, it's always going to be your choice to start. Um, and I explained from the beginning that they are uniquely responsible for their happiness and success in life. And that's not, that's a message I repeat during my, my presentation is called, I choose my future. And I tell the kids, you're going to choose every day. You're going to make choices that determine who you become in the future. And you're responsible for that. So let me share with you what I lived as a DE agent for 31 years. And let me show you what happens to individuals and families in our community and our country and the rest of the world from people's decision to use drugs. And, and the kids really respond beautifully to that. I don't talk down to them. Numerous kids come up to me and thank me for talking to them rather than at them. Uh, numerous kids come up and tell me, they thank me for, for the message. And they say that they've been told many times not to use drugs, but they tell me I'm the first person who made them understand actually why. Um, and, and I've given about 800 and some assemblies now in 15 countries to about 165,000 kids. And uh, I learn every time. You know, I, I change my presentations based on what the kids tell me. Uh, and my whole goal is to meet the kids where the kids are on this. And I think that's one of the problems with typical drug prevention education. We talk down to the kids, we lecture the kids, and we don't make it clear that it's going to be their responsibility. And if they hurt themselves or they allow their friends to hurt themselves, they're the ones who are going to suffer. You know, they're not going to ruin my dreams. They're going to ruin their own dreams and their family dreams. And it works. The kids listen. That's great. So M Michelle's other comment is, you know, they with the D.A.R.E. program that you mentioned, and there's a whole um, understanding that scare tactics don't work. And you kind of mentioned that. But fentanyl is deadly and it's scary. So what what is the right approach? And you kind of answered that. Well, I mean, I think I think people really don't. They say, you know, prevention doesn't work. Or you can't use scare tactics. But how do you how do you teach a child not to use a substance if you don't explain the reality of the consequence of that decision. So I don't think I'm using scare tactics. I think I'm sharing reality with kids. Um, and, and I don't know how you teach kids anything without sharing reality with them. So, you know, once in a while, someone will object to some part of the messaging I use. Some schools will still say, well, we don't want to use you because you're going to trigger some of our kids. And my response is, if I don't trigger every child 
in the assembly, then I failed. Uh, because I want this information to be burrowed deep into their brains. I want them to learn this emotionally. Because if we don't, if we just talk at them, uh, I don't know that it's going to be at the front of their mind next time they're at the party and some friend offers them a drug that could take their life. So I believe in the power of teaching this very emotionally. I routinely get kids crying and running out of the presentations. I'm actually getting therapy now because after my presentations, numerous kids are coming up crying and hugging me and thanking me and sharing with me some a misery, some abuse they're living because of someone else's drug abuse. And the schools that that use my services are completely on board with me. So, you know, there are still people in education who don't like what I do or don't, don't agree with it or they think it's too strong. And there are numerous districts in San Diego that have gone the exact opposite direction and are ordering their schools to, to create assemblies for me to come in and, and teach. So, you know, we're, we're trying to find solutions, uh, Ranit. And, 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 you know, what I'm doing is what I believe works. And I, I, I've taught in Africa, Asia, South America, Mexico, U.S. And I teach the same program everywhere I go. And the kids listen everywhere I go. So I have created a teaching tool that has some kind of shared humanity in it that gets the kids to pay attention. Wow. I love that. Um, wow. Magic worker. Look, you got a doctor's not scared. And now they got the kids, you know, you got the, <laughs> it's amazing. Um, there's a whole um, new science called prevention science and that looks at social norms and promotes social norms. And I'm going to have some podcasts about that uh, in the future. But it teaches that most kids actually don't use drugs. Do you use that in your presentations? Well, I, I'm aware of it. I mean, I agree with that. I agree that it is a minority of kids who use drugs. But um, it is a culture that makes it seem like everyone uses drugs, right? Mm -hmm. So my, my war is to fight that. If I get an hour, or many schools now are giving me 90 minutes, that 90 minutes is going to be the one chance in the year for us to fight back a messaging that the kids receive all day, every day. I mean, you you can't find a movie or TV show today produced for kids that doesn't have positive messages about drug consumption. Um, it's just there, the music videos, the, what's on YouTube, and, and the kids that want to go down that road, the, the phones have made them, you know, made everything's accessible to them. So, you know, I, I can't change any kid's decisions. I'm not going to be with them at the party, but if I can change their perceptions, Right. If I can change their perception of harm from those choices, then then logically some of those kids are going to be making better choices. I'm never going to change every kid's behavior. I'm never going to get every kid to, to say no to drugs. But, you know, and I also use this notion. Every 100 kids that I address, I think 10 percent, probably 10 of those kids are never going to use anything. Um, and then there's 10 percent who are never going to listen to me. Right. For whatever reason, those kids are just going to they're going to have to learn the hard way. So really, I'm fighting for the hearts and minds of those 80 percent of the kids that are in the middle that are undecisive. They don't, they, they're, they're swayed by the culture, but they're aware that there's harm. So I really try and, and hit them square in the face with, this is what actually happens to real people. This is what you're not seeing in the movies. This is what you're not seeing in the music videos, but this is what happened to beautiful, special, treasured people just like you who thought they could handle it. And, it, and it's it's powerful. And, and the schools that use me, they, they say, you know, teachers have been in the program for 30, 40 years. They said they've never seen kids engage with a prevention assembly like they engage with mine. And, that, and, then, and again, that's the secret of the success. We, I don't have the tools yet to do long-term surveys of the kids to see how this works, but at least short-term. Um, and, you know, it's funny. On Monday, I was giving a presentation for Oceanside School District, and afterwards, we had asked the audience for questions, and this teenager took the microphone and said, hey, man, you came to my school in February, Rocky, and you changed our minds. Yeah. And it was this beautiful, spontaneous testimonial from a 17-year-old. Um, that, you know, it's, it's powerful. And so, you know, I, fight, I have to fight the kid. Not one single kid, Renit, wants to come to my assembly, right? When the kids are told they have to come sit in some drug assembly, they don't want to be there. They think they think they know it all. So my, my job is to convince the kids to listen, 
The parents don't think the kids are going to listen, you know, learn anything. The teachers don't necessarily think they're going to listen and learn. And but I believe by the end of the assemblies, and I've done some surveys, you know, post surveys, and the results are awesome. Like 85, 86% of the kids at the end of my presentation say they thought it was worth their time. And so, you know, I'm going to keep doing it. And and, and also what I say, what I'm doing is minimally useful. I mean, it's it's not remotely what the kids deserve. Our kids deserve much more intensive education than I can provide. Um, but what I do is much better than nothing, right? So until our society kind of gets around this and maybe mandates drug education again, um, I'm going to keep, you know, seizing the opportunities to educate as many kids as I can. That's amazing. Can you, I want to come to one of your presentations. I'd love that. No, I'd love you to join me. I'd love you to speak with me. I'm, I'm getting some, actually in, in uh first part of March, I'm speaking at a couple of continuation schools in Vista and they give me two hour assemblies. So wow. we would have time to, to fit you in if you'd love to come. I want to come and watch. And actually, can you give my audience a little preview of like some, you know, we're, we don't have 90 minutes here, but just like a, you know, a few of your yeah, like so start, impactful start, slides. I started the DEA when I was 23 years old. So the first picture I show is of this handsome, young, dashing DEA agent with big hair and big beard. And I say, anybody know who that guy is? And I'll have a thousand kids in a high school staring. And they have no idea that that, unfortunately, was me when I was young. So I say, that was me. And the kids all laugh and they, they get a good laugh at my expense. But I make the point that that picture is not in the presentation so that I can cry about getting old. It's that they see me as an old, bald, white man. And uh, a lot of the kids tune me out. Simply seeing me, they tune me out. And they figure I've got nothing relevant to teach them. And I explain that since the age of 23 until now, I've been seeing what drugs do to individuals and families and, and the world. And so I built some credibility that way. And then I have a video I created that shows the faces of people who died from overdoses. And it starts with Ike Turner, the musician, and it age regresses. And it shows these beautiful smiling faces all the way down to about 11 days old. And it's about three, four minute long video. And by the end of that video, the kids are with me. You know, they didn't realize that nine, five, four, three, two-year-old babies are dying from overdoses. You know this because you work in, in the emergency department. But the public doesn't know that very, very young infants even are dying from this. And then I talk about the drug-addicted babies. And in particular, in particular, the 35,000 or so babies that are born addicted to opioids every year in our country. So I'm sharing with them some very powerful uh, consequences to people. And then I move into... The fact that the drug dealers don't care about you, they're liars, they will cheat and, and, and do anything they can to get your money. I talk about teenage brain development. I talk about the social consequences of, of drug abuse. And there's a slide I have where I, I show crime, poverty, child neglect, and child abuse. And I say, look, after the party's over, this is what's waiting for the drug users. And I'll ask the kids, how many of you know some other teenager growing up in poverty because one or both of their parents spend all the family's money on substance abuse? How many of you know young teenagers growing up neglected by their parents, having to raise themselves? because the parents are high or, or drunk or absent. And how many of you know young kids who've been abused by their own parents? You know, the mother who gets drunk and hurts her child or the dad who gets angry and he can't get high and hurts her child. And I've met many. And then I say, look at me, everybody look at me. And they do, this huge audience, they all, they all look at me. And I say, if you're living any of this, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. This huge emphasis I put on that. And I say, I'm saying this because too many of the young people who suffer from this, they do think it's their fault. They don't realize they can have a better future. And that you need to reach out to the school counselors and, and you need to trust and let people help you guide you out of this because too many of the kids that grew up in these conditions end up replicating this in, in their lives. And, uh, and then I go into specifics about some of the drugs. I don't have time for everything, but I'll talk about fentanyl and the counterfeit pills and the death 
consequences of fentanyl. I talk a little bit about methamphetamine because in San Diego, that remains a nasty scourge that we're not even talking about, unfortunately. And then, of course, I, I talk about the marijuana and you're, and, and you're amazing and what you've done to educate people on, on the teen health consequences for, for cannabis. Uh, and then at the very end, I, I say again, I put it, I bring them back up and say, look, guys, it's on you. You know, what choices are you making? Who's, what friends are you choosing um, today? Because th those choices are going to have long, you know, lifelong consequences for you. And so I need about 60 minutes minimum to do my message and about 90. And it's amazing. The schools are giving me 90. Lemon Grove School District, the, print, the superintendent ordered her schools to give me 90 minute sessions with fifth through eighth grade. And when I tell most educators that I can do a 90 minute assembly with fifth graders on drug prevention, they're in disbelief. They're absolutely convinced that that's impossible. The kids won't pay attention. It's, 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 it's too harsh for them. They won't understand anything. And at the end, I have some pictures that I show now. At the end, I ask these groups of kids, if you understood, fifth graders, if you understood everything I talked about and you thought it was worth your time, raise your hand. And I've got, you know, 95% of the kids throwing their hands up. And because the reality is, and you know this very well as well, too many of our kids are starting drug use today at eight, nine, 10 years old. They're starting very, very yeah, young. They are. It's. I ask every single patient that I see, now, how old are you when you started using drugs? And some of them, you say, oh, you know, 18. And I said, what drug was that? That was heroin. I said, no, no, no. What's the first time you ever started using drugs? And they're like, oh, that was just pot. I said, and how old were you? Again, nine years old. I haven't met anyone who's into fentanyl that didn't at one point in their life start their journey to drugs with marijuana. Yeah, no, and no, but this is the reality, but we're ignoring it. You know, most most schools and school systems think that elementary is, is far too young for this. But sadly, the reality is that many of our kids are starting down this path, you know, in elementary school. And then many of the drug dealers, and I'm, I'm an unusual guy. Uh, and when I was a DEA agent, I was unusual as a DEA agent. And I would ask the people I arrested, the drug dealers I arrested. I would ask them questions because many of them were living in addiction as well. And I would ask them when they started and, you know, how they felt about hurting other people. And, and uh, many of them, you know, started as, as young kids, got addicted and ended up just, you know, dealing drugs because that's what they needed to do to buy their own. But, you know, we're, we're still struggling to get our school systems to, to all of them to open up and let people like me. I'm not alone. There's a number of people in San Diego out doing the same kind of work and and we're all struggling to, to get access, but we're pushing and we're opening some doors. I've got half a dozen districts in, in the county now that are like, that seem to be completely behind what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, I'll work with that. That's great. And um, how do teachers and parents react to you? Some of them who may be using drugs themselves. It's interesting. Uh, the parents are disengaged. Uh, I'll still agree to do parent events for school districts, but some of the districts, there's 20,000 parents and caregivers in the adult population, and they'll do numerous advertisings, you know, a free evening session, and we'll get 10 parents that that, that log in. With all the headlines and all the, the awareness that I think is out there about the drug problem, parents have a disconnect today, and they don't, I think the parents are living it's in denial. It's not my child. It's not my idea. Yeah, I was. I mean, I, I have three daughters and they each had along the way different issues with drugs and alcohol. Nothing too major, thank goodness. But, you know, I was in denial as well. And, and they think their kids are too smart. They don't understand that it's an insider threat. This is something I teach. It's an insider threat. It's not going to be some obviously bad kid that's going to trick your child into using. It's going to be their best friend, their cousin, their neighbor, the teammate, their boyfriend, girlfriend. And, and that's why I teach so powerfully and so emotionally, because, you know, when they're in that social setting with their boyfriend or their, their neighbor, and the kid offers them, holds his hand, says, look what I got, let's do this. It's just like marijuana, but better. Uh, that's what they say, right? It's just like marijuana, but better. I want our children to understand that's not true. 
and and they can't use it. So there are occasionally um, teachers or school counselors who get upset with me because they see the kids crying in the assemblies. But you know, again, we're 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 trying to find new solutions to this hideous problem. And and the school districts that continue to use me, they get it. They're willing to cause the kids to have some some emotional reaction to this. Um, to learn. And, and I kind of equate it to an immunization. I mean, often our immunizations will cause fevers and cause pain. Um, but we, you know, we, we know that the child needs to go through that to be protected. And so I sort of have that notion about what my assemblies are. They're barely minimum. Uh, like I said, the kids deserve much more than I, I'm able to give them, but it's infinitely better than nothing. And if it's painful and it's shocking, um, then hopefully, you know, it will be. Remembered. But it cures and it prevents. It's worth it. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, we're never going to, I hate the term war on drugs. I've, I, even as a DEA agent, I thought that was just the most absurd term. We, there's always been drug abuse. There always will be drug abuse. We're not at war with it. We're trying to reduce it. We're trying to manage it. And and I believe, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of shocked that our country really doesn't talk about prevention education at all. And there are, there are no national figures, none, talking about massive public you know, prevention education in the schools. And I don't well, understand that. If anything, there's a negative thing, like, oh, we don't want to make that happen. Well, there's a stigma. No, it's 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 insane. It really is. There's right. a stigma. I don't know if it's exactly. because of, of how DARE was discredited and we have a bad taste in our mouth. But, but I mean, everybody's talking about more law enforcement. Great. I'm all for that. We have to do that. Not very effective at the moment, but we got to keep trying. Um, and then more treatment. Absolutely. Let's try and fix the poor people that have, have created this misery that they're living in. Right. But we haven't stopped the pipeline. We're increasing the pipeline that needs treatment. So we can't keep up with it. No. And that's what, so that's why I get, I, it really is hard for me not to get extremely frustrated. I was sent a video last night by a very prominent guy who was on one of the big TV networks talking about what we're going to do. And he, he also is talking about declaring, you know, essentially war on the drug cartels and blaming the cartels and this lengthy conversation about the drug problem he doesn't mention prevention or demand once no. and you know i travel i'm going back to mexico next week i, I often teach in mexico and, and i own i assume you're fluent in spanish i am fluent in spanish i teach how, in spanish as well how did that happen well before I, when i was assigned to bolivia um in, in 1998 dea taught me spanish and then i spent six years down there trying to to get better at it. so no i i i have the blessing of being able to, to teach in both english and spanish and that's really valuable and particularly in san diego there are very few people in drug prevention education in san diego who are able to teach bilingually so that helps and i get great buy-in from the hispanic parent population uh, actually much percentage-wise in any school district I, I i do in a parent event we got much more participation from the hispanic parents than we do from the from the english-speaking parents yeah they want to yeah they want to protect their kids and do i think they the, those parents feel more vulnerable yeah, I think they are. They do feel more vulnerable. I think they're 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 more appreciative of of efforts to help guide them. Um, a little less denial, and uh, you know, I'll work with it. But again, my my preferred audience is the kids. I want them as captive audiences. That I don't care if they want to. And I'll tell them. I tell them straight up. Sometimes I don't care if you like me or not. I don't care. It's not my fault you're here. You can blame the principal for being here. But <laughs> since you're in my assembly, you have a choice. You can listen, or you can tune me out. But since you're here already, I'm going to suggest that you listen because you might find there's something relevant. And I, I teach in the juvenile halls, too. One of the beautiful things I get to do is go in and try and teach our incarcerated teens. And that is not for the faint of heart, Renit. Um, There was one invitation I got to speak out at the youth prison out in Otay Mesa. And the, the probation officer who, who invited me almost said, and I can't, actually, I need you to come, but I can't ask it because the kids are so bad. And I went out a week later and 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 they were that bad. I mean, they were they were verbally how old were, they? how old were they? 15, 16, 17. And when you say bad, what does that mean? Well, I look, I, I taught, I've taught in, in these 15 different countries. One of my trips, I went to El Salvador and I was sent to teach in MS-13 gang areas. And I was there was a police officer with an M16 rifle standing next to me 
as I was lecturing the kids to keep me safe. That's how bad this area was. And those MS-13 kids treated me better than these teenagers locked up in San Diego did. They were flipping me off. They were throwing F-bombs at me. I looked to the guard for help. And the guard goes, hey, dude, you volunteered for this? Um, And it was me against those kids. And I thought, okay, well, you know what? We'll just do this. They'll calm down. I showed my overdose video, which normally calms the audiences down. It did not. The verbal abuse just continued the entire time. Um, I'm not a quitter, but I, I little voice in my head was saying, this is just, this is stupid. They're not learning. You know, you know, you need to quit. And I didn't quit, Doc. And that was the secret. I finished and it was different because when I finally finished with this group of, of 15 or 16, you know, angry, incarcerated young men, they realized what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to prevent them. They realize that, you know, that I'm trying to prevent the pain and suffering they grew up in. Because it's not an accident that a teenager ends up in prison at 15 or 16. And things were done to them or not done for them as children that created that reality for them. And these young guys all realized it. So I have a picture. You're not supposed to take pictures inside juvenile hall, but I don't respect the rules very much. So I said, hey, if you guys support what I do, would you please stand for a picture? And I have a picture where, you know, I'm facing the camera, their backs are all to the camera. And all these young men who an hour before the picture had been flipping me off and cursing me out. We're standing to show support for my message. And that's super motivational for me because if I can get those, again, if I can get those angry, cynical, wounded young men to get find some value in my message, I, I, I have to believe that when I'm in a high school, a regular high school with a thousand kids, that some of them are also getting something from the message. Wow. Wow. So um, Dave, producer for Hydro, sent me this article uh, just uh, December 1st, just now, 10 students treated for suspected overdoses at Vianney's Middle School, at school. Yeah, I know. I, I read that this morning, and it was a, it was an edible thing. So the the culture in California, when we legalized marijuana, and I know you've had endless conversations around this. One of the consequences that was predictable is it decreased the perception of harm in the kids. And of course, we didn't limit the THC content in what's legal, right? And so the industry has gone to the races. So the kids have been told that it's, it's legal, which to them means it's not harmful. And they don't understand. And I think most adults don't understand that the, the edibles, for example, even the smokable marijuana, there's a huge range in potency, right? 5% THC up to 95% THC, the same problem in the edibles. So you have these little kids who are being given or are buying edibles, and they have no idea how much THC is in there. And it's just... I, 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 I'm happy it was THC edibles and not uh, fentanyl pills. Those that those ten kids took at that. You know what? That's the problem. Because reading the headlines, it's like, oh, don't worry, people. It wasn't fentanyl. And I'm thinking, okay, it wasn't fentanyl, but it's still not okay (laughs) to poison little kids at school. Well, no, of course it isn't. But I mean, what's so shocking and scary is the kids are willing to take whatever whoever brought that to school looked at those kids and said, this is good and safe, and, and you should take it, and they did. And, and we have numerous instances now where middle schoolers are, are there's one famous story earlier this year, a 13 year old used fentanyl at a middle school back east and died uh, at school, which is pretty horrible. Um, but they did a follow up investigation and he, the kid had 100 baggies of fentanyl at, in his bedroom and 40 baggies in a backpack at school. And we have a 13 year old fentanyl dealer in Bakersfield just a month or so ago. Two 13 year olds got in a fight at a middle school and during the fight, a pill bottle fell from one of the kids and a teacher picked it up and inhaled fentanyl. So we're living in a reality where, where there are as young as middle school. Uh, dealers bringing this stuff to school and we have a culture where the kids have have been taught hey just enjoy it don't don't think twice before you use it so again that's where we're trying to which i'm trying to fight back i don't some people want me to come in and just talk about fentanyl and i refuse um you know i'll talk about a bunch of different drugs and i try to to, to give the kids a message that it's all bad uh, marijuana is not going to kill you like fentanyl will but marijuana will damage your development and harm your life 
But that's really what I'm fighting back against. I want the kids to not just think automatically that it's safe. And I don't, I don't think I agree with you, Rocky. I don't think that you, people, everybody wants to hear about fentanyl. If I talk about fentanyl, they're like, oh, thank you, Dr. Lev, bless you for what you do. And if I say something about marijuana, it's like, oh, she should be fired. She doesn't know what she's talking about. I don't think we could really address at a primary prevention point, which is what you do, fentanyl, without mentioning marijuana. I don't know. I, I agree completely because fentanyl isn't relevant to kids at a young age. What they're seeing, well, vaping, you know, it's funny. I, I've always rejected the notion of marijuana as a gateway drug because I, like you, I've seen too many people whose lives have been derailed by marijuana. I mean, marijuana is a very destructive drug in our teens. Um, but I do believe that vaping is, in fact, you know, uh, the gateway drug. And, and when I go to a middle school or even elementary schools, but mostly I work in middle schools and high schools. But if I go to a middle school and I ask the, the principal, what's your drug problem? They will scream at me vaping. Like literally vaping because vaping, it's, yeah. it's a nightmare for them every day. They're having to deal with kids, you know, bringing these things to school and what do you do with it and the time it takes and the families who don't care. It's a nightmare. And I say, well, actually, I disagree that that's your biggest problem. To me, you have a population of kids willing to take whatever somebody hands them. And mm. today that whatever they hand somebody hands them could be deadly. Um, but certainly what the schools are seeing is the vaping of nicotine and, and THC. And that's the vast majority of kids. If you ask them what's being used, they're going to say THC and vaping. And I agree. How, if, you, if you want to teach them not to use the hard stuff, you have to teach them the risk of using the stuff that's, you know, arguably a little less harsh. Oh, well, yeah, that's that's true. I like that. You just taught me something. It's the willingness of taking anything that you don't even know what it is. That's the that's the biggest danger. And and what you're saying goes along with the SANDAC data, um, you know, uh, the city of San Diego um, does surveys of, of youth, and that's exactly as there's very low perception of harm of vape products. They say, "Oh, it's just vaping," um, but um, the if you look at juveniles who are in the system for, and and they ask them what drug use, most of them when they're vaping, like eighty percent of it is marijuana products too, um, and uh, un unfortunately, this also to complicate matters is making our mental health problems worse in our country um, because one in five people who chronically uses marijuana will get permanent psychosis or schizophrenia. And we've seen in populations uh, in Europe who are actually studying this, we're unfortunately not doing that as much in the United States, that the whole uh, incidence of schizophrenia and mental health goes up in places where there is high potency THC. And I bet if we studied that here, we would see the exact same thing. So I don't know if that's helpful for you when you talk to kids, but not everyone who's going to use marijuana is going to get schizophrenia. You might, and you might, and you might, and you might, but then what about this other person? You don't know. Just like smoking cigarettes, not everybody who smokes cigarettes is going to get cancer or emphysema, but it's a risk factor. Yeah, no, no. And I don't know if that talks to kids. You're the expert on that. It does. Well, the, the problem is I'm limited by time. You know, there's so much that I want to include. So I, I didn't I know if that message resonates with kids. Okay. It does resonate. Oh, no, kids get it. And I talk about that. I say, look, 10 of us could take whatever drug. 10 of us could take it. I, and I make the example of a fingerprint. I ask the kids. Everybody knows you have a unique fingerprint, right? Well, guess what? You have a unique brain chemistry. That's why psychiatry is an art. Oh, psychiatry nice. is not an exact science at all, right? Mm -hmm. It's a, Because every patient has a different reaction to every drug. And, and a, a pharmaceutical drug. And so every every individual is going to have a different reaction to every street or party drug. And I make the example that 10 of us could take a, a drug and have 10 different reactions to it. And nobody knows, a message I repeat over, nobody knows before they start 
how it's going to impact them. And everybody I show, all these tragic people, I have the methamphetamine before and after people, these poor wretches, you know, that start out taking meth to feel strong and powerful and they end up looking like this completely broken. And the provincial community doesn't like those pictures. I, I know they don't. And I don't really care. And that's the oh. thing. I'm not, you know, I, 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 I love myself, you. I'm not for I, like. I, I do prevention. Awesome. Um, but the prevention industry, the prevention industry is against what I do. Uh, I took a, I took a, I, w- I actually got to go to Vienna to go to United Nations uh, course on drug prevention. And in the manual that the United Nations puts out on school-based prevention, they say assembly-based, in the book, it says assembly-based prevention is ineffective. So they just declare that what I do is useless. And they want these six or 12 session programs with the kids. Well, that's great. I agree. Those are much better than what I do, but the schools are not creating those opportunities. So, you know, I, I, I love the expression, don't kill the good in the search of the perfect. You know, in a perfect world, all of our kids would be getting multiple session interventions every year in school, and they would all understand all this. That's not what's happening. So I'm struggling to get that one session, that one chance to hit them hard with as much information as I can. And and whenever I hear the experts and say, well, evidence-based, I love it. Everyone's evidence-based. Everybody throws that word around. Yeah, right. I'm like, okay, okay. You please show me where there's less drug use now than there was a year ago. If you're going to tell me that there's some evidence-based program that works, okay. Show me where it's working. Show me where it's reducing drug consumption. And it's, 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 that's difficult. And, you know, of course, the, the analyzing the drug situation is, is a very complicated problem in itself. It's not static, right? The drugs that are being offered are getting stronger and cheaper and easier to get. The drugs are changing. The culture is changing. There's so many variables going on within the, the culture around our kids that I think it's a very complicated task to actually scientifically measure you know, the positive impacts of prevention programs. So for me, I go with student engagement. You know, if the kids are actually going to listen, and again, the schools that use me, that's what the schools are going off as well. The school, they've seen numerous drug prevent, prevention presentations that the kids just ignore. Uh, and, and they don't ignore mine. Okay, so the schools, they, you know, they're willing to use that. And again, there's conversations in Sacramento now about mandating drug prevention education. I don't know how advanced they are, and I, I, I'm sure we're still some years away from that. But I will be very, very happy to ride off in the sunset uh, into full retirement, you know, if if I get replaced by these mandated multiple session drug programs. But in the meantime, uh, I'm going to keep getting out there and, and doing my thing. And, and I, I'm open to advice and I'm open to criticism. And but, you know, when Good I get the kids, you. thank you. But when the kids come up hugging me and thanking me at the end of my presentations, oh. or the kid speaks up in a public assembly and says, dude, you changed our minds. Oh. You know, I'll, I'll keep working with that. Yeah, they're saving lives one assembly at a time. Um, tell me about your your kids. You mentioned this. You you got into this because of your own children. Now they're old. How old are your kids now? How my my daughters are twenty seven, twenty five, and twenty two. The oldest is a is a police officer up in Idaho. Um, the middle one, is a recent UCLA graduate, you know, looking for direction in life, and then the the younger one uh, didn't want to go to college at first, but now she's gone back to college and. Um, during their teenage years, when they had these different issues with, with alcohol or substance abuse, and, you know, initially there'd be a crisis and a lot of emotion and, 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 and co- harsh conversation. But then afterwards, I always followed up with a calm conversation. I would ask my girls, I said, why would you do this? You knew better. And, and they always said, Dad, it was my best friend. It was my boyfriend. It was, it was my teammates. And my oldest daughter, who's the cop, when she was at Boise State, she got an FBI honors internship, which is very, very difficult to get. It's a pathway to becoming an FBI agent. And she got it in college. So I was living vicariously as a dad, so proud of her. And so she's 20 years old or 20, 21, and she had to take a lie detector test to, to advance in that progress. And those are three or four hour 
uh, sessions. And I, after an hour, she called me. So I simply, when I saw the phone ringing, I knew there'd been a problem and she answered and, and I answered and she was crying and she goes, dad, I failed. And I go, why? And she goes, I smoked weed in high school. And I'm like, oh, you know, no, you know, I got kind of angry for a moment. And I said, why? And it was her boyfriend at the time. She knew better. She knew she shouldn't do it. But her boyfriend kept saying, come on, come on, come on. And a few times she smoked weed. And, you know, that's sort of an unusual circumstance. And the FBI doesn't reject you forever if you've smoked weed. It was just, it was too close in time, you know, yeah. too, too little time had passed. So she lost this amazing life opportunity, you know, for smoking weed for literally no reason. Uh, and then, you know, one of my other daughters, uh, they were at a music conference and, and one of their friends offered him LSD. And, and Good for her for being honest, though. You well, know, I, I, I've accomplished that. I've accomplished yeah. a situation where my daughters are willing to come to me and share their problems. And, and I try not to judge. Uh, sometimes it's hard, but I try not to judge. And, and we, you know, we talk through, OK, you know, what can we learn from this and how can we move forward? And it's that same, honestly, that same technique that I use with my own daughters. That's what I use in the schools with a thousand other kids. I talk to them all like they were my child. I tell them they matter to me. I say, and I look, you guys all matter to me. And they may sound corny. I do this because you matter to me. I want you to be happy. I want you to be successful. And I want you to be thinking about your choices. So here's the information I want you to have. Now you go make the right choices. And that's the same policy I have with my own kids. Here's the information I can give you. Here's the perspective I can offer you around these problems. Now it's your job to make the decisions that work for you. Beautiful, beautiful. You worked in law enforcement where you decreased the supply of drugs, and now you're working on the demand side in decreasing use. And um, are there similarities? And what do you like better? Oh, oh my God, no! I, I I absolutely love what I'm doing, and and it's I realized that you know the situation right now. One of the one of the slides that I show is we know the current drug situation, and I argue that drugs today available to our kids are stronger, cheaper, easier to get, and more socially acceptable than ever before. So after 31 years of, of being in the trenches of you know drug law enforcement, unfortunately the drug situation by every metric is much much worse than when I started, and uh, you know I'm in this accidentally. I didn't expect that I would give any more than one assembly 15 years ago, and now it's now it's become my job. And when I retired last year, um, I didn't have a vision for what I would do. I, I was just kind of tired of, of of chasing the drug traffickers, and I retired. And um, I was in, I was offered this position with the County Office of Education to, to teach. And I believe that position was offered to me because the, they had seen the work that I was already doing in the community and, and the positive reactions we were getting from the different school districts. So um, I respect law enforcement. Law enforcement is absolutely a necessary part of the problem. I respect harm reduction and treatment. Absolutely part of the problem. But I I am fighting to. to part of the solution. I'm part, part of the solution. Excuse me. Part of the solution. Yeah, but I am trying to fight for greater awareness of prevention, you know, and that it has to be part of any solution. And unfortunately, we're not there yet. As bad as the death numbers are, as bad as the addiction numbers are, all the suffering, we're our society is not coming to terms with the reality that we at least have to try what I'm doing. So, you know what, Rocky, to take it back, what you, what you started doing when I first met you, um, you were reaching out to doctors and that was upstream approach that was preventing the problem where it started. You know, you could, we had these patients who are like these bags of meds and it's like, I'm not gonna fix that. We just keep need to keep these people alive, but we're gonna create a new generation of Americans who are not addicted to opioids um, by iatrogenic means from the medical community. We did that and it was the same approach and you were reaching out very smart and doing that at that time with the medical community. And we solved, we no longer have an opioid prescription 
epidemic. We didn't. And we solved that not through Suboxone, although that's important. We solved that through primary prevention. And so the fact that you are choosing now to, to, to do that, again, very similarly, I think you're using an upstream approach of prevention. And if we were able to keep kids from starting any drugs, alcohol, tobacco, you know, marijuana until age 25, um, we would have less total addiction in our country. Um, oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. You are very much on the same page. And, uh, you know, I, I, people ask me how much longer I'm, it's, and I have to put my, I'm actually like, I'm going to therapy now because after every session, I'm getting these beautiful kids coming up, you know, and it's hard it, and it's hard. And I, I, I have to bring my emotion and my reality every time the kids smell a fake. You can't stand in front of a thousand high school kids and, and talk about anything and have them believe you're a fake. So I have to bring my myself to these sessions and it's tiring emotionally. And people ask me how much longer I'm going to keep doing it. And you know, I, I don't know. And but my answer basically is as long as they keep listening, right? I mean, until society comes up with better solutions and and, and if the kid, you know, eventually if I get so old or something, the kids actually stop listening to me, um, then I'll stop. But in the meantime, I've get I've gotten enough positive feedback from kids uh and families. Um, that tells me that we're making a difference that I'm going to keep doing it. And, and it really is one kid at a time. And that's a cliche. Um, but when you see in your medical profession, or I saw as a law enforcement officer, the absolute pain and chaos and destruction that one person in addiction can cause, you realize that every person you save from this, you're actually, you're doing a lot of good. Um, you're not just helping that person, you're helping an entire environment of people um, you know, to live more peaceful and calm lives. And, you know, we, we focus on the overdose numbers and, and I understand why, I mean, those are, those are important, but, you know, for everybody who dies from an overdose, I believe there are dozens more living in addiction who don't die uh, and they recover from their overdoses. And for everybody who lives in addiction, suffering like that, there's another 10 or 12 people at least, right. Who are impacted by the suffering of that person and who can't sleep and, and live in and constantly waiting for that phone call, telling them that something terrible has happened to their loved one. So the actual number of people in the United States, suffering daily from drug use is many millions. It's many times greater than than the number who are dying. That's right. um, and and that's why that's why I'm getting so much reaction from the students because there's a huge population of students in our schools that are showing up with problems, and the schools are identifying those kids, and they understand that child is struggling with drug abuse in the home or the, or the home environment. But I believe there's another population that's as big or maybe even bigger of kids who are suffering, but the school doesn't know. And the kids mask it. Um, they show up. They they pretend like everything's fine, and and they go back to their life. And I mean, those are the kids. Many of those kids are coming up to me during my or after my presentations and sharing things with me. So the schools, some of the schools are learning about problems in the kids that they didn't know about because of my presentations. And then the schools were able to give those kids some supports and and some some therapy and counseling that they need. I think that's great. I've I've taken personally a lot out of this conversation. I think I'm going to approach things even better than I than I try to do when I interact with um, young people uh, in the emergency department, based on our conversation. And um, I hope that um, I'm, I'm proud of you for getting the mental health, you know, for recognizing that this is hard and getting that real, you know, getting the treatment that you need. And I hope that you're inspired by each of those hugs and smiles that, and people who stand up for your pictures. That'll give you the the, the strength and, um, you know, uh, good mental health that, that you deserve so you can continue that. Well, thank you. No, and that's exactly it. First, it hurts. Um, and I'll take selfies with the kids and I'll, I'll share those with the school to make sure the school knows, you know, that this kid needs some some supports. But I but I do. I, I, I the mental health thing. I actually argue that the drug abuse problem is a giant symptom of our unaddressed mental health crisis. Right. And of course, 
it's going to take us forever to figure out which which comes first, right? Right. But, um, you know, the CDC came out with their surveys earlier this year that was horrifying. And 44% of American teenagers self-identify as persistently sad and hopeless. And when I discovered that data, how can our nation not have a crisis response to almost half of American teenagers self-identifying as persistently sad and hopeless? And we didn't. You know, 120,000 dead. Oh, okay. You know, half our teenagers persistently sad and hopeless. Oh, okay. You know, what are you going to do about it? Well, let's let's talk about it and let's address it. So, when I, when I, but I, one of the things I talk to the kids about is I explain how I understand their reality. The smartphones. So our kids are have, are more anxious, more depressed, more lonely, more isolated than ever before. COVID was terrible. Um, the modern society has, has created all sorts of increased anxiety and depression and low self esteem in our kids. The phones have changed how our kids communicate, and many kid, teenagers today don't even know how to have actual communication with their peers. Everything's done through the phones. They don't even really know how to talk to each other. When there's downtime, they're not sitting around sharing their life. They're sitting around on their phones sharing TikTok videos. Uh, so you have a much more um, mentally uh, or emotionally troubled population of teens than ever before that is left capable of communicating amongst themselves. And then social media has taught those kids, you don't share reality. You put a beauty filter on everything before you put it out there. So the kids are less willing to share, right? So my argument is that we have a bit much bigger population of kids in pain than ever before who are less capable and willing to share it and get rid of it than they're carrying it around with them. And they go to the party and their friends offer them these socially acceptable party drugs. And that's when the tragedy happens. These kids in pain, mental and emotional pain, discover the damn drugs work. That 90% THC takes them away from the pain, that the fentanyl pill takes them away from the ecstasy, the coke, getting drunk temporarily solves that pain problem. But of course, all the pain's waiting for them when the drugs wear off. And unfortunately, once some percentage of our kids have discovered the chemical escape that drugs offer them, they're going to go back to it because therapy and, and actually working through your problems is painful and time consuming and difficult and getting high is easy. And so I'm trying to prevent, I'm trying to tell the kids, if you're in pain, please don't think that using these drugs is going to help you because you could be that one who discovers that, you know, you want this again and you want it again. And all you're going to do is drag your life down if you go down this road. Much, much safer, much healthier, never to find out what these drugs can do to you. No, that's a great message. Um, what do you think about drug testing of kids in schools, in a mass event, in an in a assembly like that? Have, have you run into that? There are some programs called um, drug-free clubs of America where they'll have some fun event, uh, you know, a football game or something that everybody's excited about going. And they do, uh, if you do a drug screen, then you get, you know, free tickets. And that's an opportunity to catch people who may have a problem and, and get them into treatment at a young age. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think the kids are very sophisticated. They're, I think the kids are much more sophisticated than we realize. And uh, this, the same young man that came up to me on Monday, they, they spoke out publicly in favor of my program. He came up afterwards and we talked a little bit and we were talking about the surveys that are done. And he laughed. He goes, no, the, the kids were using this stuff. They don't answer the surveys. Um, so I, I don't know how effective a program like that's going to be because the kids who are using are not going to voluntarily do that. They're, they're not going to risk getting caught. Um, and, and, uh, I, you know, parents will ask me about drug testing their kids. And, and my standard response to that is one of, of go with caution, because an important part of parenting is, is trust and communication. And if you just randomly drug test your child, I don't know how that does anything but kind of tear down trust. Certainly, if there's some in, in, indicia of drug use and you find paraphernalia or the kid's behaviors change or something, then, then, then drug test them openly. But what I do tell parents that are concerned, you know, take the kid to the pediatrician and ask for, ask for a blood test. 
You know, you have the right as a parent to, to request the doctor to do a drug screen on the kid and, and don't share that with the child. You know, and then depending on the results of that test, you can you can decide to have the conversations or not. So uh, I'm not a big the fan medical of, community is not into that. Well, yeah. you know, that's that's fine. You know, <laughs> there are some doctors who are, and yeah. you know, the parents who are concerned about it can can find a doctor who's willing to work with them. There's no reason not to do that, in my opinion. It's not unethical. Um, and you know, in today's world where a drug using kid is elevated risk of death, uh, I I hope the medical community can change its mind around that again, because it's the mindset you you addressed this a few minutes ago, the mindset of the kids today is that drug use is normal. I mean, we, we still have the same culture surrounding our kids telling them that drug use is just a normal and, and fun part of being a teenager. Right. And that's not changed. I mean, we're all intellectually aware of the risk of fentanyl and, and the super potent meth and the super potent THC. We're aware of it. Some of us, I guess. But the culture around the kids hasn't changed. Right. I think it could change. be like you mentioned, it's a it's a prevention tool, like like you said, for those parents who are um, are, are want want to do that. And uh, and even schools who may want to do that as a prevention tool, um, you know, people who work for federal government. It's a great deterrent because they know they're going to maybe drug tested, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think some sports. I mean, I think some some high school athletics programs required. I've, I think yeah. I've heard information like if you want to participate in sports, then you have to give a drug test. And I just think doing it to an entire student population is I don't know how that's workable, and I don't know how that would survive. You know, objections from the parents and and I think the kids that are using uh, are going to do anything they can to to avoid getting caught. You know, I don't even like doing when I when I will do the surveys. Um, I like doing my surveys on paper, completely anonymous. Um, because even if we try to do a, an anonymous electronic survey, the kids are savvy They They don't want to be answering questions about drug abuse on an electronic format that hypothetically, you know, someone could trace back to them. So it's, it's for me, the most powerful harm reduction tool in the planet is information and education. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to continue to push the information education side. Um, you, you probably don't mean harm reduction tool. You mean primary prevention tool. Well, but also harm reduction. I mean, if you look at the prevention is part of harm reduction, right? I mean, typically harm reduction is the clean needles and the testing kits and things like that. But I include what I do in, in the big picture of harm prevention. And and I think the, the technical definition of harm reduction is really tertiary prevention is somebody who already has a problem, people who have a substance use disorder and and making them not die. Like we're, we're not going to cure it necessarily, but we're going to minimize the damage. No, I understand. No, I get that. And I'm trying to change that definition. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm going to continue pushing my perspective, which is the most powerful of all the tools uh, to prevent that tertiary harm is, is to prevent the start. And because I want, I want the people in harm reduction are in harm reduction. I want people to start looking at this problem holistically. The people in law enforcement, I want them to look at the problem holistically. I want the medical profession to look at this holistically. I want everybody involved. I accept law enforcement. I accept harm reduction. I accept treatment. I want those fields to accept prevention education and to promote it. And I and I, I get tired of listening to all these prominent people talking about how to solve the problem, and they don't even mention prevention education and and demand reduction. Yep, agreed. I want to say thank you to Michelle. Michelle, uh, may Trevor's memory be a blessing to you. You're an example of parental power and advocacy, and may you have continued energy to keep up the pressure to save lives. And Rocky, Rocky, you are a rock star. And thank you for reaching kids and saving lives in this upstream approach to drugs and addiction. Well, thank you, Dr. Lev, for everything you're doing, both in your profession and with the social media and and getting this word out there. I'm very proud of you as well. Happy to be your friend. 
Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor, Millennium Health. Collaborating with the CDC, FDA, and the United States Department of Health and Human Services to help save lives. Their recent study in JAMA Network Open was the first to demonstrate the relationship between drug testing data and overdose mortality, allowing work to begin on exploring methods of timely prediction of overdose mortality hotspots to support targeted response efforts. To learn more about this important work, visit www.millenniumhealth.com. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.